So today we're in for a treat. We're looking at another strong woman of the Bible. Last week we looked at Mary Magdalene, so if you didn't see that one, I encourage you to go check that out. This week we're looking at Deborah. Now Deborah is a judge over Israel. We're going to describe that a little bit shortly. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to Judges chapter 4, verse 4 to 6. And this is going to be our launching pad for understanding a little bit more about who Deborah is. And if you don't know where the book of Judges is in the beginning of your Bible, there is a table of contents. Go ahead and use it. It's going to help you familiarize yourself with where things are. And, uh, and that's a great thing. You know, that's what table of contents are for. So, Judges chapter 4, verse 4 to 6. And here is what it says. Again, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan who reigned in Hazor, uh, Sisera, and the commander of his army was based in Heshereth, Hagorin. Because, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. We're going to talk about that. That's an interesting concept. The, the, these, these two phrases in here, one of them being, that they, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord again, and the other one, that they cried out to the Lord for help. That's going to be important for us. And before we get into that, let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together, and I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word, that we would have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you. In your name I pray. Amen. So let's talk about Judges a little bit, and specifically um, some context here. So you have Moses, and most people are familiar with who Moses is. Moses is the, the guy who led Israel out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea. But Moses also had what you would call um, sort of a, a, a right-hand guy. He, he was his uh, next in command. He was the one who was his successor, right? So after Moses passed away, you had Joshua. So Moses led people out of Egypt towards the Promised Land, and Joshua led them into the Promised Land. And so Joshua ultimately with Israel and certainly like with God's uh, both leadership and uh, sovereignty over everything, they conquered Canaan. And when they conquered Canaan, they divided up the land according to the tribes. And then after a while, Joshua passes away. And when Joshua passes away, something significant happens. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10 to 16, it says this, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, and this is talking about Joshua's generation and those who remember the conquering of Canaan, right? So, and the, the euphemism of being gathered up to their ancestors means that they had passed away. So after uh, that whole generation had been gathered up to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now think about this, right? Like they, they neither knew the Lord or what he had done for Israel. So there, some translations will say that they didn't remember the Lord. They didn't keep him as focus. And then it says in verse 11, Then the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of peoples around them. Uh, they aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him, served Baal and the Ashereths. Now, this is an interesting thing because you have a people who move into and conquer the land of another people, but they begin to adopt some of the customs, some of the patterns, some of the behaviors 
of that new world for them, right? And it's interesting to me because this is this is like Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, right? Like, don't be, uh, do not conform to the patterns and customs of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? And so there's a pattern of, of being conformed to the patterns and customs of the world around us, and, and ancient Israel was no different in that way, and we're no different in that way. And it does beg the question, actually, of what patterns and customs of the world around us have we adopted without even realizing it? Like, that's an interesting one to me. So it says, They forsook the Lord their God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped the various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashereths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of the enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. And then in verse 16, it says this, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Now this is an interesting thing, because before Israel had a king, they had uh, a series of tribal leaders, you could say, that were called the judges. God used these men and, interestingly enough, woman, uh, because there's only one, to save the Israelites from their enemies and lead them back to him. So the book of Judges records what you would consider kind of a dark chapter in Jewish history. Um, it notes each judge's deeds for the most part and the circumstances surrounding the need for that judge to come forward. Typically, what took place is that... Um, a judge would rise up and, and the people would follow after the Lord until that judge passed away and then they would fall away again. After Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, we just talked about this, Joshua led them into the promised land and when his generation died, they began to worship other gods. So the Lord handed over to them enemies to be used by the surrounding, using the surrounding nations to kind of test them and, and, and cause them to reach out to him again. But every time a judge died, Israel went astray again, returning to the sinful practices of idolatry. And this is, this is an interesting concept because this is what you would call the, the cycles of judges or the sin cycle is another term that's used as. And let me just explain that sin cycle to you because I think it's also relevant in our own lives. So here, here's how it plays out. Uh, Israel is good with God. Right? Like their relationship is good. They're worshiping him. They're following him. He's blessing them. Things are great. And then something takes place. Like there's a forgetting of the priority of God in their lives. And it typically becomes a generational thing. Like one generation honors the Lord, but the next generation, it would seem either, either betrays or forgets or neglects or drifts from the Lord. And so Israel falls into sin. And, and what's often stated in this entire book is, is kind of a hard word to hear. It's this, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And every single time it referenced this evil in the sight of the Lord was always the priority of other religious practice or idolatry in their lives. They didn't make the Lord number one. They made everything else number one. 
And so then they did evil in the sight of the Lord, following after the patterns and the customs of the people around them, rather than what he has called them to be as a set-apart people. And so we read that, for example, in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. So God allows the people to fall into bondage because of their sin, right? And, uh, and so he just hands them over to it. He says, listen, this is what you want? Fine. Here you go. Have it. He hands them over to their sin. And in their sin, they're oppressed. And this oppression comes in the form of, for Israel anyway, uh, coming under the authority of, of one of the neighboring nations and just really gaining a sense of oppression from that. And so realizing their errors, Israel cries out to God for help. So you've got Israel good with God at the top, you could say. And then if we're going around, we've got Israel drifting from God, God giving them over to sin, them feeling oppressed, right? And then in that oppression, they call out to God, they cry out to God for his assistance. God then raises up a judge to rescue them. And then Israel is delivered from its oppressors. And the result is a peace that's restored in the land of Israel and in the relationship with God. So you have Israel's good with God, they stray, they're given over to their sin, they're feeling oppressed, they cry out to the Lord, and then God sends a judge to raise them out of their oppression and back to the Lord, and then there's peace between them and God again. I'm not confident that that isn't the way it is in my own life. When I prioritize something else, I wonder, does God put other, like just hand me over to it and allow that to take its place so that I cry out to him again. And then Jesus being that ultimate deliverer, I reach out to him and I am back into peaceful relationship with the Lord again. I wonder if, if that's a pattern in my own life. Maybe you could evaluate that for you. Is that a pattern in your own life? But this is the context that we find Deborah in. Deborah is one of the judges that gets raised up. And so here's some of the stories that we, or some of the things we learn about Deborah from the Bible in terms of the facts about her. Uh, her story is told both in story form, but also within poetic form, or it could be referred to as song form. And so in chapter 4 of the book of Judges, you have the story. In chapter 5, you have that poetic uh, retelling of the story. Deborah has an impressive resume. She's a judge. She's a prophet. Um, she is brought into a battle that causes her to be a warrior. She's a poet, perhaps a songwriter. She's only one of five women described as a prophet in the Old Testament. The other four are Miriam and Hannah. Sorry, not Hannah, Huldah. Uh, you have uh, Noadiah. And the prophetess talked about in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3. She's the only other person in the Bible who was said to be both prophet and judge. The other person was Samuel, who was that? And Deborah is the only female judge mentioned in the Bible. This is interesting because to be a judge is to be a ruler over the people and is to be God's ordained person over the people to rescue them from the oppression that they're in. So Deborah is this woman who it's pretty important at this point in the history of Israel. So let's talk a little bit more about her. God selects his, his prophet, right? And so in Judges chapter 4, verse 4 to 5, we were introduced to Deborah, right? 
In Judges chapter 4, verse 4 to 5, it says, Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. Uh, some translations might say that she was the judge over Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went to her to have their disputes settled. Now her name means bee or honeybee. And it gives this notation of, of being industrious in some fashion. And whatever it is that she's doing, she'll be industrious within it. Now, Matthew Henry, a famous commentator, points out that some of the qualities that you, uh, that you see in bees that uh, Deborah possesses, of course, that she was industrious, she had sharp perception. I don't know how we know whether or not bees have sharp perception, uh, but this is his opinion on it. Uh, great usefulness, sweet to her friends and sharp to her enemies. Now, it's interesting to note at this point that the subject of women in ministry is often an incredibly controversial topic. But when you read the Bible, you're going to find some incredible women that God uses. So I do think it's important that we understand that God uses women for His purposes. And, and God is not limited to our understanding on how that plays out. So I want you to notice that Deborah was a woman of great confidence. So not only did God choose her, because the only way you were going to be able to be a judge over Israel was if you were ordained by God to be judge. Okay, It wasn't a matter of inheriting the position or paying for the position, nothing like that. You had to be called by God into that role. So Deborah was called by God into that role. You then have her as a woman who is known to be a woman of great confidence. Judges chapter 6, uh, chapter 4, verse 6 to 10 says it this way. As she's leading, we find her saying here, or at requesting, she says, uh, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. This is a pretty significant passage of Scripture. It doesn't just say that give them into your hands. It also says uh, that uh, Barak said to her, okay, so this is a conversation. Barak says to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I will not go. Verse 9, certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command, and Deborah also went up with him. So Barak is this leader in Israel. He's a commander of, of Israel's military. But he wasn't willing to go into this battle by himself. There was something going on in the context of this passage and in, in this point in history that created what many have called a fear in Barak. And the only way that he was going to go was if Deborah was willing to go with him. Now, I want you to imagine the scene. Sisera had 900 iron chariots. This is the equivalent of the ancient military tank, right? Like, this is not something just simple. These were specifically 
iron chariots. This is in an age where gold was predominantly used for things. Uh, to, the Iron Age has certainly come in, but iron wasn't very readily available everywhere. You had to mine for it, bring it in. And, and so then to have 900 iron chariots was significant. Your arrow wouldn't pierce it. Multiplied thousands of skilled soldiers greatly outnumbered Israel. And so in his own strength, Barak had every reason to fear defeat. And yet, he forgot something that Deborah had said earlier, that God had told him that he was going to deploy and deliver and destroy Sisera at the river Kishon. So eventually, uh, Barak didn't fully believe it, or evidently Barak didn't fully believe this, but Deborah did. Deborah believed God even in insurmountable odds. And she believed God no matter how impossible the situation looked. Barak didn't. Barak assessed the situation and he was looking at it from a human perspective. But Deborah was relying on the information she got from God. And so there was a confidence in the one who was sending them, which had a greater confidence um, for Deborah anyway, than the picture of what they were walking into, right? Like the picture of what they were walking into looked pretty difficult but they were being sent into it. And so the one sending was stronger than what they were walking into. It makes me wonder what kind of impossible situation you might be facing today. I mean, is it financial? Is it relational? Is it family? Is it friendship? Is it work? Like, what, what, what? Is it health? What is it that looks impossible to you? I want to urge you to commit this particular verse to memory. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of, our, of the Lord, our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand. And so in the face of adversity, to rest in the one who holds you is always going to be a better scenario than looking at things through our normal human lens. We find that she's a woman of great conquering. News began to spread uh, to Sisera's side that Israel had a plan for attack. In Judges chapter 4, verse 13 to 16, it says this. Verse 13 to 16. Sisera summoned from Herosheth Hagoi Lim to the... Um, sorry. Sisera summoned uh, Herosheth Hagoi Lim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this day the Lord has given Sisera into your, into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down the Mount Tabor, 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled by foot. And then verse 16, Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim, and all Caesar's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Israel moved forward in faith with God, and the battle ultimately, like it was already won. It's interesting to me that we often look at life as if it's a series of battles that that lead to a war that we then also have to fight. But the reality is that sin is defeated, death is defeated, the war is actually over, there are skirmishes along the way, but we act as if the war isn't over, that it isn't won. But it is. 
And so we're then able to walk into any given scenario recognizing that the Lord has already won this thing and all we need to then do is be faithful to Him in whatever it is that we're encountering. If we keep reading, we go over to Judges chapter 5 when we read verse 4 and 5, it says this, When you, Lord, went out from Seir and you marched in the land of Edom, you, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. King Jabin's army and Sisera were humiliated and demolished. Sisera took off and he thought he found some relief in this tent um, of a woman by the name of Jael. This is an interesting story. Jael was the wife of Heber the Canite, or the Kenite. He was a friend of King Jabin. Sisera felt secure enough to, in the care of Jael that he fell asleep in her tent. And then we read in Judges chapter 4, verse 17 to 24, that Barak not only pursued everybody, that Sisera meanwhile fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabed, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered the tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him something to drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him as he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man that you're looking for. So she went... So he went with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressured, pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. So King Jabin's army was humiliated. We find that Sisera was killed by Jael deceitfully. And Deborah started the victory. Jael, a woman, finished it. Now, do you remember what Deborah said to Barak in the beginning of this story? She says to him initially, listen, God's saying you're going to go, you're going to go out to the Kishon River and you're going to defeat these armies. And he says, I'm not going anywhere without you. And she says, okay, fine. If you're not going to go anywhere without me, then you need to know that God's going to give the victory of this battle to a woman. Now, presumably... Barak might have been thinking, okay, then the glory is going to go to Deborah. But in fact, there was another woman that was raised up in this, and her name is Jael, and she's ultimately the one who sealed the victory that Deborah already started. So Link, think about this. We've seen the sin of God's people, right? Like they, they forgot the Lord, and then we see the selection of God's prophet, right? So she's raised up in order to be able to uh, relieve the nation. You have the oppressors being rooted out. And what comes next is a natural byproduct of what happens when people are freed from their sin, freed from their oppression. 
There's the shouting of God's praises. In Judges chapter uh, 5, verses 1 to 3, it says, On that day Deborah and, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinuam, sang this song. When the princes of Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. So let me remind you that the same God that released Israel in this day is the same God that we serve today. He's the same God who gives us victory in Jesus. And just as Deborah and Barak gave praise to the God, realizing that there's no way they could have accomplished any of this stuff on their own, that's what God deserves from you and me as we move forward with things. Let me share with you an awesome verse on the topic of victory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. It says, but thanks be to God. So here's the starting place. The starting place is thanks be to God, not a self-focused thing. It's not the selfish thing that says, I'm thankful I have victory. No, it's thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You catch that? Thanks be to God. So our direction, our eyes are focused up, and that's where the thankfulness comes because of his action in our lives, right? We're thankful to him for giving us the victory. We didn't gain any victory on our own. It's not by man's merit that we have any kind of victory. It is solely on the basis of God's work in our lives. And then this song includes a praise for the Lord's help. Like they gave praise to God for his incredible faithfulness. Like anytime you think about the stuff that God's done in your life, one of the, I mean, if I were to think of a classic hymn, it's great is thy faithfulness, right? Oh God, my father. So it's always good to stay praising the Lord, not just for the big victories, but also for the small ones. I think all too often we don't think about the small ones enough and we only think about these big ones. But you know what's a good small victory? Lord, thank you for helping me not lose my temper in this moment. Thank you for helping me to choose to trust the people around me rather than think ill of them in this moment. Like whatever those small victories are, like the, the idea of the self-doubt that we climb into so often or the reminder of how bad we once were instead of the identity we currently have in Jesus. And so there is praise for the Lord's help. There's, in Judges chapter 5, verse 2, there's praise for the Lord's helpers. How are we going to have victory like Israel had victory that day? Like the leaders were leading in Israel and the people willingly offered themselves. The leaders and the people got together hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, and God worked mightily through them. Are you one of the Lord's helpers? Like read Judges chapter 5 and the song of praise for those who made an effort to join the army of God. And just ask yourself, like, what does it look like for God to honor and for the people to honor those who join in the God's, into God's work? But it also, like that same song, chastises essentially those who don't get involved, those who are on the sidelines and unwilling to offer themselves. Maybe it's a lack of faith, or maybe it's a fear-driven thing. Maybe it's a preference thing. Maybe it's a I-just-don't-want-to thing, and it's an attitude issue. Maybe it's a fear of failure. But are you one of the Lord's helpers? Judges chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, they say this. 
Why did you stay among the sheep pens to hear the whistling of the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. Like there's no excuse alive today for God's people not serving him faithfully. Like there's a questioning here of the people who chose not to get involved in this battle. And God is saying here, listen, like there's no excuse. Like why did you do this? Why didn't you join in? Today our decision, or today is a decision day for some people. Some of us are marching forward in faith while some are sitting on the sidelines. So here's the question. Are you involved in the Lord's work? Like God's constantly doing something. So do you wake up each morning and say, hey, Lord, what are you up to today and how can I fit in? Or maybe there's something that's a rallying point for the people of God that says, hey, listen, we got to go about being doing this stuff. This is what we're entering into. Do you join in? At Pathway, do you help within the victories of the church and whatever congregation you're in, if you're watching this and it's not our congregation, like how are you joining in to the victories of the call that the Lord has on your congregation? Are you faithful with your testimony, with your tithe, with your time, with your temperament? The leaders were leading and the people were voluntarily following. So let your commitment to God be as strong as the sun is to shine. Judges chapter 5, verse 31 reads this way. Judges 5, 31. So may all your enemies perish, Lord. May all who you love be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Listen to that. May all who you love be like the sun when it rises in its strength. You know what Jesus called us? The light of the world. The light of the world. And nobody puts the, lights a candle, puts it under a bowl, right? But instead they remove the bowl and let it give light to everybody. In the same way, you're a city on the hill and the city lights give light to everybody around. This is what we're called into. And so we need to be having our commitment to God as strong as the sun shines when it's at its strength. And because of the people's sin, they were in bondage to the enemy for 20 years. And because this woman of God was willing to listen and obey God, the land had rest for 40 years. Look, the, the period of Judges is a dark time. It's a dark area in Israel's history. The book shows how, pre, how persistent Israel is in moving into sin, and I just don't think that we're that different. I mean, we could look at Israel and say, how could you? You saw God do all these things. Well, how could we? We serve the same God, and yet we do the same stuff. And so this book shows how persistent Israel is in forgetting the Lord and how faithful God is to discipline and deliver His people. You catch that? Like, like when we're under discipline, this isn't God being mean. This is God saying, listen, you've strayed. I'm going to send stuff your way to show you your need of me. And then when you call out to me, I'm there. Like, I've got you. It's in Judges that we see Israel's need for the Messiah. Like a godly king. Because there's no good king in Israel, everyone, man, at the end of the book of Judges, it's one of the most sad verses in the Bible to me. 
that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It makes me wonder about our climate in our world today. Like, do we have a king? The Bible says we do. But I wonder if sometimes we act like we don't. And then everyone just does what's right in their own eyes. Right? Like, you do you. I'll do me. And let's not judge each other accordingly. But the reality is, is that the, the notion of doing right in our own eyes, this is not a new notion. This is nothing new under the sun. This is something that they wrestled with back then. And back then, like, it is strange to me because it, they've had time and time again where God's showing up to deliver them from things. But in the time that they have no king, Israel does what's right in their own eyes instead of doing right in the Lord's eyes. You see, because there's a, there's a comparative statement here. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord is one of the statements that gets repeated. But another statement that gets repeated is that Israel did what was right in their own eyes. And so it seems as though we have this tension of what's right in our eyes and what's right in God's eyes. And, and, and there's this thing where sometimes they overlap, but often what's right in our own eyes, that's self-driven, self-purposed, isn't necessarily what is right in God's eyes. And so the connotation in this passage is that Israel needs a king to keep them connected to the Lord so they'll do the things that are right in his eyes and know what things they should be pursuing. Otherwise, they're going to be left at their own devices and do what is right in their own eyes. And that king statement, it's not talking about Saul. It's not talking about necessarily David or, or Solomon or any of the others that come after it's talking about Jesus. That when Jesus is king, he's going to lead us into the things that are right in the Lord's eyes. And we're going to move away from the things that are more self-driven. We've got to stop doing what is right in our own eyes and start doing what is right in the Lord's eyes. So maybe the enemy has had you down and defeated. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're checking this out today and you're, you're caught in that sin cycle where, you know, you were good with God, but then you drifted. And then in your drifting, you, you started going more and more into idolatry, more and more into what was right in your own eyes. And then so then God gives you over to it. And, and you're wondering, Lord, where are you? I'm in this place of despair. I've sinned. I don't know if I can come back to you, but I need you. So when you cry out to him, he is faithful. He is just to forgive you. And so in doing so, Jesus takes it from you. And you're able to praise the Lord and be right with Him again. Like, is that where you are? Is that the cycle that you find yourself in? I want you to know that Jesus is the deliverer that we all need. And He's risen. And we can have victory and peace and assurance and joy in Him. Like, that's what we get from Deborah. What we learn from Deborah is that when we're dedicated to the Lord's purposes, that we view things His way, when we're committed to Him, things go in His direction through us. He uses us in powerful ways. And we're rewarded in the end. Now, it may not be an easy thing. Look, it wasn't easy for them to go to war. It's not necessarily an easy process. But there's a reward at the end of it. That's a great place to be.
It is literally the difference between um, instant gratification and long-term reward. And we got to choose what we're into. The Lord is more often than not trying to cause us to move in His direction because we were made for eternity. Like, think about it. Where are we going to spend the majority of life? In eternity. How do we know that? Because it's called eternity. Maybe we should have our focus there more than here. Let's be like Deborah. Let's listen for him. Let's follow him. Let's communicate what his things are. And then let's be faithful to follow through on the things that he calls us into. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that, that as we reflect on this, as we study it deeper, as we look more into it, that we would be convicted to move in your direction rather than pleading with you to move in ours. Because we know, Lord, that when we move in your direction, that's where we find joy and hope and peace and comfort and security. And so, Lord God, may I not buy into the facade of what I think might be good, but rather into the truth of what you say is good. In your name I pray. Amen.